I have entitled the message, Love Your Neighbor. Pardon me, instead of, you can't be too busy, too selfish, too lazy to love your neighbor because it's a command, you know. That didn't sound as friendly. So love your neighbor it is. We're going to start with a reading from God's word. And for many of us, we're going to be reading a passage that you know very well. And once you've been a believer for a little while, you come to realize that it's often the 10th, 25th, or 101st reading of a passage where you get fresh eyes and insight. So let's pray that God will move our hearts this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, these are your words, and they are true, and they are profitable for those who would have ears to hear. Would you soften our hearts right now? Help us to receive what you might wish to speak to us today. Make us more like you, Jesus. Amen. Today, our reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, and we will be reading the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you have your Bible, please open it to Luke 10. I'm going to warn you in advance, clearly, not Paul Franks and not Pastor Don. So what you're going to see is the scripture verse up here for you to follow along with. But I decided not to list my points on the screen, particularly because I jump all over the place and you would become highly confused. So just follow along with me as you can, if you will. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read the passage together at length. We're going to break down the passage as a brief explanation of the context with which Jesus was speaking at the time. And then we're going to apply the passage with some takeaways for ourselves. So Luke chapter 10, we're starting at verse 25 and going to 37. And you should have an e-Bible, an i-Bible, or a paper Bible and follow along because even if they give us a microphone, we make mistakes and you have to trust God's word over us every day. So make sure you have it and your eyes are on the passage. And just so you know, I'm reading not from the ESV or the CSB, but I'm reading from the brother, which is one of my favorites, the NASB. So if some of the words are slightly different than what you're reading, you'll understand why. Starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Ah, but who is my neighbor? And here's where the story happens. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers. And they stripped him, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And by coincidence, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came up to him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii 
and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed compassion on him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. So let's break down the story a little bit. See, this is a familiar story to me. So I went on a hunt. And I read over a bunch of commentaries and explanations in many places, like Matthew Henry, Tyndale Commentaries. And I even hunted around on some of the Christian ministry sites that you can find online. Got questions, Bible study tools, and Christianity.com, just to name a few. And I got a distilled version of what they all seem to say regarding the basics of this parable that we're going to walk through today. The parable of the Good Samaritan is an answer to a question posed to Jesus by a lawyer. Now, in this case, if you do your research, the lawyer would have been more of an expert in Mosaic law like a scribe, not so much like a court lawyer that we would know today. The lawyer's question was, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what do I do? I want to go to heaven. This question gave Jesus an opportunity to explain what Christians and his disciples' relationships should be to their neighbors. Jesus doesn't answer his question directly with a statement, but he answers the question with a question. He says to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it in in verse 26? Side note. Many Christian apologists, if you follow Christian apologists, will tell you that when we are discussing our faith, we tend to be quick to give an answer in response, when instead a well-worded question does two things. It helps us to understand a little bit more about where the person is coming from, and also it's a really great way to help the other person to come to their own conclusions. This takes practice, but Jesus sets a good example here. So here, by referring back to the law, Jesus points the man to an authority they both are going to accept as truth, meaning the Old Testament. He's actually asking the lawyer, what does scripture say about this and how do you interpret it? By doing this, Jesus avoids arguments and he puts himself in the position of being able to evaluate the scribe's answer instead of the scribe evaluating his answer. And we hear the lawyer answer, the scribe, answer Jesus' questions by quoting the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. Now, Jesus likes the answer given. He agrees with the lawyer that his answer is, in fact, correct. Well done. Jesus' reply tells him he has given an orthodox or scripturally proper answer. But then he goes on in verse 28 to tell him that this kind of love requires more than head knowledge or an emotional feeling. It includes action when he says, do this. The scribe was an educated man, and he realized he could not possibly keep this law. There would always be people in his life that would be hard to love. You understand that, right? There are people that are hard to love. So what does he do? He does what we often do try to twist it a little bit. He tries to limit the law's command by limiting the scope and asking the question, well, then, who is my neighbor? 
The word neighbor in Greek means someone who is near. And in Hebrew, it means someone you have an association with. This interprets the word very specifically. And in this case, it refers to him to be a fellow Jew. And it would have very specifically not included foreigners, Romans, Samaritans. As you can see, Jesus then gives the parable of the Good Samaritan to correct the false understanding that the lawyer had on who his neighbor was and what his duty was to his neighbor. Now, according to the Tyndale commentary, which is something I didn't know, oftentimes in parables, there were three characters. I don't want to liken it to this, but, you know, two guys walk into a bar. And so they would be used to this kind of formulaic saying, okay? They would be used to a priest, a Levite, and a Jew. So obviously, Jesus changes it up and surprises the listeners when this time it's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. By the way, this is a completely irrelevant side note. In most of my notes, when I was typing them up, apparently I can't spell Samaritan. So if I say Samaritan, you know why. (sighs) Not good. Okay, so that was the setup, and here we get to the story. The parable of the Good Samaritan tells the story of a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And while on the way, he is robbed of everything he had, including his clothing, and he's beaten to within an inch of his life. Now, the people that were listening would have known that road and would have known that this was a treacherous, winding place, which was a favorite hideout of robbers and thieves. It was making a connection to something they already knew. Interestingly, though, Jesus in the Bible only refers to him as a certain man, a certain nondescript man. We don't know his age, his religious beliefs, his job, his race, his stature, nothing. We just know he was robbed. Likely Jesus did this on purpose. The next character Jesus introduces into his story is the priest. Jesus spends no time describing the priest. He only tells us that he showed no love, no compassion when he sees the man, but he deliberately ignores him and walks over to the other side of the road to pass him by. Now, if there was anyone who should have known love, shown love, it should have been him. By nature of his position, he was supposed to be a person of compassion, representing God and desiring to help others. The next person to pass by was a Levite. And he does exactly what the priest before him did. He passes by without showing any compassion at all. Again, he would have known the law, and he failed to help the injured man. As a little aside, I know the tribe of Levi was commissioned to do priestly duties. So I wondered what the difference was between the priest and the Levi when I was learning about this. And I learned specifically the priest held the exclusive rights for service at the sacrificial altar at the outer and inner sanctum of the temple. And the Levites took the responsibilities of the non-priestly tasks, like singing, guarding the temple, and other kind of temple works. What's the point? Why, why are they different, and why are you telling us this? Well, these are examples of the people we find here at church. The leadership and those in attendance, the body of Christ. Those are the two kinds of people that pass this man by, us. 
The next person to come by is the Samaritan. He's a twist in the story. The listeners would have thought this to be the least likely to show compassion for the man. Samaritans were considered a lower class of people by the Jews at the time because they had intermarried with non-Jews, did not keep the law, and disagreed on many points. So the Jews would have had nothing to do with them, even to the point that they would have walked the long way around through the river so they wouldn't actually have had to take the road through Samaria itself. So like we said before, the certain man who was robbed, we know very little about. He was certain. We don't know if he was a Jew or a Gentile, but that didn't seem to make a difference to the Samaritan. The good Samaritan saw only a person, an injured person in desperate need of help. So he did above and beyond the minimum required. He was on his way somewhere else, and he interrupts his journey to offer to help this stranger. Imagine the relief of the man in distress that somebody stopped. So what does this passage say about how the Samaritan helped? Well, we see here he dresses the man's wounds with wine. That would be to disinfect them. And then oil to soothe his pain. He puts the man on his animal and he takes him to an inn for a time of healing. He pays the innkeeper with his own money. And then he goes even further. And he tells the innkeeper to take good care of the man and he would pay any extra expenses when he returned. I think we would all agree that the Samaritan treated the man the way we would want, hope, one of our loved ones to be treated if they were hurting and in genuine need. So why did Jesus use this story? Jesus is showing the difference between those who knew the law and those who followed the law in their conduct and in their lifestyle. And in turn, the difference between us who academically know the Bible, God's word, and those who live it out from the heart. Jesus asks the lawyer if he can apply the lesson to his own life with the question of, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer admits it was the Samaritan. And Jesus then tells the lawyer, go and do likewise, meaning he should start living out what the law tells him to do. By finishing this way, Jesus is encouraging the lawyer and the hearers of the parable to be like the Samaritan in our own lives, showing compassion and love to those we encounter in our everyday activities, regardless of who they are, their financial status, political beliefs, race, gender, culture, or religion. If someone has a need and we have the resource, then we are to give generously and freely without expecting a return. And my question would be, who isn't our neighbor? So the kicker for the story, realistically, spiritually, and naturally is, actually, all of this is impossible for the lawyer to accomplish and for us to accomplish. We know that because we know that the Old Testament was under the law and the New Testament is under grace. And we know that we can't keep the law because of the human condition of our hearts. Our desires are selfish and of self. And when left to our own devices, thinking we won't get caught, we will often do the wrong thing. 
missed the mark. I hope the lawyer eventually saw this and came to the realization that there was nothing he could do to justify himself and that he needed a personal savior to atone for him and to save himself. So what the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us is three basic things. We should be ready to reach out to our neighbors, knowing that everyone is made in the image of God. We should be willing to set ourselves aside to show love and compassion for others. And that we all need God's redemption, help, and grace to do any of these things. So we have the scripture passage, and now we have the context explanation. And now we're going to take a minute to apply this to ourselves. I don't know if any of you feel convicted, but I always do when I'm standing up here giving a message. I always appreciate when I'm asked to share, but in truth, usually the ideas I talk about are for me first and you second. Things I'm working on, and if they apply to you as well, great. So let's take the story and apply it. Every generation deals with many new variations of, here's some alliteration for you, distractions, discouragements, and depravities. These days, I think you would agree that we might be a little overconnected to the entire world through news, media, social media, and just in general being online and having access to so much and yet being disconnected actually from the people around us. And we could spend time, it's a whole other sermon, to discuss how much is real and how much of it we think we know and what's really happening. That's another sermon. It does take real effort to slow down, unplug, and find the time to check in, reach out, spend time with even our closest friends and family, let alone everybody else. That tends to seem like an impossibility. I don't know if you feel the same way, but that's hard. We're also overly busy, me, which also makes us disconnected from our life-giving relationships. You know, I sometimes wonder if we have lost some of how to be a church family and how to be the body of Christ. Because we have filled our schedule so full that even when we do see a need, we are often reluctant to be the one that acts because what it, what it will cost us. It'll cost us time, money. It will certainly interrupt our non-negotiable time schedules. And it would have us be willing to give of ourselves when often we are already running on empty. So we hoard our time and we hoard our compassion. So what is the challenge then? What are some things that we need to consider in our own life when it comes to others? Now, I don't want you to panic when I say the next sentence. Here are my seven points. <laughs> I promise they're quick. They're very, very quick. Okay. If you're taking notes, this is where you're going to write a little note. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Number one, notice. Notice what God shows you. All three parable characters saw the man. Their eyes worked. Some of us refuse to see. We look away. We deliberately do not want to engage because we don't want the inconvenience or the aggravation. We disobey. 
and there's no way to candy coat it. We are called to look. Number two, stop. Stop. Really, that's a big one. That's the point where you're arguing with yourself and you're making excuses so it doesn't have to be you and you don't have to put yourself out and interrupt your day. And that's where you have to battle selfishness, laziness, and where we can get tripped up. It might mean rearranging your schedule. It might mean an inconvenience, but we need to stop. Number three, act. I think it's really important that we all assume that we are the one that God is calling to help. Not the next person, not the ministry leader, not the pastor, you, me, us. The believer is Christ's representative. You are Christ's representative. I think of Moses who said, but Lord, I'm not qualified, I stutter. And God's answer was, I chose you. But I'm so busy. But I'm an introvert. But I don't have a lot of money. But I am a raging germaphobe. But someone else might be better at this. Exactly. We all know we are making excuses. I even think of in general, oh, this is going to hurt a little bit. What about serving our neighbors in church? Those of us rationalize that we're leaving it to everybody else, but that's just laziness. And it's an excuse. And let's be honest, God is not fooled. We are his to do what he wishes with, or we aren't. And we are part of the body of Christ, or we're just a spectator. Plug in and be a part of what God's doing and reach out to your neighbor. Number four, when you do reach out, reach out in compassion. This is what I'm dealing with. Reach out in compassion rather than in duty or in irritation. Agape love and God's benevolence, God's loving grace should be flowing through us. When we act, we need to act with the right posture. I don't know if many of you know this, but I'm the junior high pastor here. And when I'm not doing the junior high thing, I am also a grade one teacher for the YRDSB. I teach grade one. And we're teaching in grade one right now what is alive and what is not alive. And the grade ones marvel to learn that a leaf is alive when it's on the tree and it is not alive when it is not on the tree. We need to be connected into the source. The only way we can model the love and character of God is not by muscling it through. It's not just by willpower. It's by being grafted into the source. That's how we get the compassion and grace and love. The fruit of the Spirit is divine. It is not of this world. And the good news is it can only come from God. And what a relief, because on my own, I can't do this stuff. Number five, the place of kindness. I think kindness is a bit of a lost art these days. 
I'm just trying to be honest. Okay, you can still be kind. We need to extend God's kindness. Now, let me be clear. Kindness is not niceness. Don't be confused. Niceness is going along to get along. Yes, that's a lovely haircut. Niceness costs us nothing. Some say kindness costs us nothing, and I wholeheartedly disagree. Man, it takes an effort to be kind when you would rather be frustrated, rude, angry, annoyed. But Romans 2, 4 is so powerful, and it says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. We want to see somebody repent. We've got to tap into his kindness and extend it. That's how they're going to see. Most of us don't want to pay the cost to be kind. We would rather not act. It costs us time and effort and energy to be kind. And it robs us of satisfaction, saying what we really think. We would rather be direct or harsh or feed that old man that we were supposed to die to. It often means we have to step up and go out of the way when others walk by and would ignore the situation. And it often means taking a bit deep breath and doing what nobody else wants to do. Kindness is a beautiful sacrifice to the Lord. Number six, meet that need with no strings attached. We're not looking for payback. We're not looking for accolades. We do this because it's right and because God has supplied us. We do it, why? Because we are grateful to the Lord for all he's done for us. And we do it out of obedience for the Lord. We reach out to someone to meet their need. Simply, it might even just be learning someone's name. It might be looking them in the eye. Or it might be meeting an actual physical need of theirs. And I'm, by the way, just a little note. I think we all know that sometimes what people really need and what they're asking for might be two different things. And we need to be discerning and use wisdom here. Be generous. Give your time, your blessings, your compassion. And lastly, from the parable, number seven, follow up genuinely. The Samaritan came back. We need to be checking in, showing up, visiting, connecting, caring. Some of you know who Rosario Butterfield is, and she wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which highlights the lost art of Christians being hospitable and using their home as a place of ministry and connection to Christians and non-Christians alike. Don't let your schedule or your pride of the current state of your home interfere with the ministry opportunities God is bringing your way. I'm wrapping up here. This particular parable has become very evident and costly to me and my families as my parents have had some health struggles lately. God is calling us to love our neighbor and right now my neighbor is my parents. And most of you know I'm a very busy person 
we're all very busy and sometimes it's really hard to stop and act with patience and grace when everything is interrupted and turned upside down. And yes, this is what family is supposed to do. Step up. But we are family. This is our church family. Are we stepping up for each other? We have accountability for the care of each other. If that's the way it's supposed to be for our family and friends and for our church family, even more so for strangers and co-workers who will know we are Christians by our love. So we act out of obedience to the Lord who died for us and wants none to be lost as an opportunity for people to catch a glimpse of Jesus and maybe the opportunity to share one day and out of love and gratitude for his sacrifice that we also die to self and live for the kingdom. So now what? We're it. Corporately, we are the body of Christ and you are the members. You might be the only Jesus someone gets to see. Jeannie Mayo says, be Jesus with skin on, the hands and the feet of Jesus. So today, as we hear the words of the Lord, we take a minute to examine ourselves. And we ask the Lord to open our eyes. We ready ourselves. We watch and pray for opportunities for action and sacrifice even today. We ask the Lord to help us to see the need. And we hear Jesus' words to the lawyer of go and do likewise. And to us, go and do the same with the help of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. Would you bow your heads with me, please?